Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business and the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. This is our third series, so if you like what you hear today, please explore the other episodes and let us know what you think. My first guest today is Mairead Mayer, director of OpenReach in Northern Ireland, building, maintaining and managing the broadband network. My second guest is Cherie Acheson, who today is Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Monzo, the Challenger Bank, although she is moving on to new challenges. She's also a global ambassador at Women Who Code and is writing a book with Kogan Page Publishing. We'll talk about the how of diversity and not just the why. We'll explore some practical tips on how to be more inclusive in your personal style and in your organisation. And you'll hear the one piece of advice that our guests would give to their younger self. Let's get to the conversation. Mairead Mayer and Cherie Acheson. Mairead, Cherie, welcome. Hey. Thank you. Welcome both to The Lens. Mairead, let me start with you, Director of OpenReach. And of course, you're in the business of broadband. Many will know OpenReach by name. And I want to get into all of that. But I do want to ask where you first started, your first ever job. Take us back. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the first ever job that I, I earned money for would have been as a waitress. <laughs> so I admit to that. I was, I was a, a weekend waitress um, at a, a local hotel in Tunbridge. Probably the first job after that was um, when I was at university, I got sponsored through engineering by Gallagher. So I worked for them over their summer holidays and things like that. So got a bit of experience there. And what was it about engineering that entered the mind of Mairead, aged probably in your late teens at the time? But what was that? I would love to say that I'd always wanted to be an engineer, but that would be a lie. <laughs> I think I was one of these people that really struggled to know what to do. So I jumped around all the standard career options in my head. And it just happened about the point in time when I was trying to decide what to do. Engineering kicked off. Nortel were big. There was lots of opportunities. And I thought, well, that sounds like something I could get a job out of at the end. Um, and I did maths and physics, which I enjoyed. So I thought, right, I'll give that a go. But it, it probably didn't go any deeper than that, to be honest. So. No, well, that's that's refreshingly candid. Thank you. Uh, give us a glimpse of the role today. OpenReach, you're in the business of maintaining, I suppose, the broadband network across Northern Ireland. Just remind us what it involves day to day. Day to day, it, it's so varied, and that's why I love it. We have people that are planning the new network that we're building fibre out to people's home. We're maintaining the telephone services and the broadband network that's currently there. So there's a huge amount of variety. So provision, maintaining, fixing faults, doing all of that, but also looking at marketing, how we drive demand, how we migrate on, over onto new services. There's lots going on, but I think that the big variety comes from having a, a battalion or a big team of people. So you're sitting with over 800 people, different things come up on a day-to-day -day basis. And both that's what I love, but also where a lot of the challenge comes from as well in terms of the role. I mean, you are providing a very fundamental service, aren't you, at OpenReach? And I just wonder to what extent you see your role to be making a difference in a broader sense in the world, in the community. I mean, how do you view that or do you just stick to the knitting? I'm trying to get my head around it. It's something that I feel quite passionate about and it really gives value to the role for me. 
particularly over the last number of weeks, when you see we're connecting critical national infrastructure, you're keeping hospitals up and running, you're keeping a large part of that key worker framework going, and even just the impact that broadband and connectivity has in people's day-to-day lives at the minute. You're working from home, you're schooling from home, you're socialising from home, and all of that only happens if you have connectivity to the outside world. So for me, although it's been a really difficult time for so many people, it has also been reaffirming in terms of that service or value that we can add to communities and to people's lives. And just briefly, Mairead, when you look back over your career, have there been times or when have there been times when you have felt not included in any environment? I think there is absolutely times that that happens. And I think there's been various points through my career when I felt that way. And probably if I look at it now, it's times when my confidence levels were low or times where I was feeling bad. So I was almost excluding myself or keeping myself outside as much as maybe other people making me feel left out. But I've sort of found as you grow in confidence, you can sort of start to recognize that within yourself and and try and challenge it. But definitely at times, particularly when I've moved into new roles or new environments, that does happen or you do feel that way. Yeah. And to what extent now has that shaped you as a leader and how you do things maybe a bit differently? It's something I try to be very conscious of when I have new people join my team. I think there is a a real acclimatization phase for people when they come into new roles. And we almost don't realize it, but we fall into a, almost like our own lingo or way of speaking when you're part of an established team that's been there for quite a while, which can make other people feel quite left out if they're not in the gang, so to speak. So it's something I try to make a conscious effort to keep people in or like on a one-to-one basis, but also the, the bigger meetings and that as well. And just make sure that they have a support system or base around them, like another couple of people that are looking out for them as well. Well, thank you for such a personal reflection, uh, Mairead. Uh, more uh, to come. Uh, this is a perfect moment to welcome Cherie. Cherie Acheson, uh, wearer of multiple hats. You're head of diversity <laughs> and inclusion at Monzo. You're a global ambassador for women who code and many other things. But but before I get into so many questions for you, Cherie, where, where did you get started? What was your first job? My first job, like I guess, like Maria, unrelated to anything that I do now, was stacking shelves in a pharmacy um, in Coal Island, which is the small village that I'm from. My dad is really good friends with the pharmacist and still is and managed to wangle me a weekend job um, stacking shelves and helping people with tills. It gave me a lot of, I guess, skills in dealing with difficult customers, honestly, people that don't want to wait for prescriptions and things like that. You learn a lot at that age when you're trying to deal with adults. So yeah, that, that was definitely interesting. My first proper job um, was when I was in Queen's studying computer science and I was a placement software engineer at a company called Kianos. And that, that feels like forever ago now, but I remember, you know, your first proper salary packet coming in and, you know, all of the big grown-up things that you're supposed to do. As a global ambassador for Women Who Code, that is very much in the business of developing role models. And I just wonder whether you had those as you were growing up. The place that I'm from, again, like I'm a person of colour raised in Ireland. Um, Me and my brother were adopted at three weeks old from Sri Lanka, raised in rural Ireland as well. Um, And the the point here is there isn't a lot of people of colour in in the space that I grew up in, Um, certainly not in my schools, etc. And there was always people that I was drawn to, I guess, in on TV and stuff like that, people that were strong. Ironically, one of my biggest role models, if you want to use that word, was The Rock from WWE. Dwayne Johnson, there you go. <laughs> yeah, because he was just 
I just thought he was phenomenal. Like he was so strong. He was able to like have people on the edge of their seats just through a TV screen. And then as I grew up and, you know, moved into careers and having a more broader sense of what a role model really meant to me, I met a woman um, called Jackie Henry, who's a senior partner in Deloitte NI. And she's a phenomenal person. Like we're still connected now because she was my leader when I was working at Deloitte. But she started off in the firm as an accountant. She used to work in her dad's shop. And then she became a senior partner after 30 something. She's in there for 30 years. So she's done so many amazing things. But people like that are the people I'm drawn to now. Yeah, people that can lead with empathy. And so even by the time you've joined Deloitte, uh, you're already starting to shape out a role around diversity and inclusion. Why was that so appealing? And how on reflection were you able to start your first steps in that area? Yeah, so when I graduated, there was a gender problem for sure, certainly in industry then and in industry now. And I became acutely aware of that when I joined um, Kianos. And at the time in the room that I was in, there was like two other women, including me, and everybody else was a man. And I think it was about 19 people or so. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to do something. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to do something that one didn't have a price point to it. Um, I grew up on free school meals. My parents were on benefits. And it's incredibly important to me that the things we do and how we do them don't have another price point because that's more exclusion. (laughs) And so I guess the short version of the story is I had a look at what existed externally and I found Women Who Code. Now, at that stage, Women Who Code was a nonprofit based in the US with about 5,000 global members. But what didn't exist was a version of that across the UK that provided free monthly meetups on tech skill sets and networking and developing confidence across the UK and wider. Um, So I was like, oh, I can do that. I can try that. (laughs) So um, I branched this out across the UK, across Europe, took us from zero to over 10,000 members in the UK. And we're now the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in tech with 230,000 global members. We gave over $1 million worth of scholarships to women in tech per year. And through doing that work voluntarily while still being a software engineer for about three and a half, four years, I was doing a lot of work with organizations, helping them with their DNI strategies, really pushing them to understand how big a part data plays in everything that you do. Well, I, I already noticed, Cherie, that there are certain roles in life where you're focused very much on one organization, whereas mm-hmm. perhaps through Women in Code, certainly through Deloitte, you get to impact multiple. And I I'm not suggesting the second is in any way less rewarding, but I wonder which you're drawn to. Uh, are there challenges with that focus? The work that I do and the organizations that I want to do it with and enjoy doing it with are places that allow me to focus internally as well, but also being able to influence the wider ecosystem and the wider society part. Now, my role in Deloitte, both being internal and external for clients, but across a huge remit, using a brand like Deloitte, what you do, people pay attention ultimately. And, and likewise with Monzo, people pay attention to what Monzo do because, you know, they are known as one of the leading challenger banks. They have a brand that almost has like a cult following. And I think that's incredibly impressive as a bank. Like, I think we have to remember <laughs> this is a bank that has this like phenomenal following but it's still a bank at the end of the day. And being able to do things there influences the wider ecosystem. And again, the next place that I do this also has the opportunity for me to reach into a lot of other places and a lot of other organizations. And that's actually half of what I will be doing full time as well, which is very exciting. (laughs) Excellent. Well, the clues are there. You're on a journey. But I do want to reflect on your time 
at Monza. You could have squirreled away your diversity and inclusion report in part of the annual, uh, you know, the annual report. But you were yeah. very open and public about it. And well, firstly, why? Why? Because it's incredibly important that we are transparent. And I say this because internal accountability is very different from external accountability. Society will hold you to account if you are not honest. Now, I think what's really important here is if you share where you're going, the things you've done that have worked well, but also the things you haven't, you're able to influence a wider piece here. People can either, you know, take the best bits from you and avoid making similar mistakes. You can also be very honest in saying, you know, we know we haven't got this all fixed. We know we haven't, um, but this is what we're focusing on and why. And I think for me, transparency is one of the key pieces for me. It's why, like, I write for Forbes and et cetera, et cetera, because I share very publicly and very frankly the things that need to happen. And that's a that's a really big, important piece for me is that anywhere I go, I do that. Yeah. So on that transparency, I mean, there is so much to be commended in the work that you've done at Monzo, representation of women, increases of ethnic minorities. But because you've already hinted about the transparency, you've shared yourself that there's been a decrease in women in technical leadership. Mm -hmm. Those ethnicity figures have risen, but not quite as much as you would have hoped. So yeah. be candid about your frustrations and tell us what you what you could have done differently, what you would encourage anyone to push harder on. Yeah. And I think the things that to be frank, I joined Monzo in November last year. So when I came in, my work was really about understanding where we were at then and then creating a strong foundation to keep moving forward on. We are about six, seven months since then. And the work that I have done has been really mobilizing the work that was happening in a way that was more data driven and strategic focused. Things haven't been done in the past the way they should have been done. We know that there needed to be more of a focus on ethnicity and certainly economic background that wasn't there. And moving forward, that needs to be something that is continually talked about, actioned and changed. And I think the, the thing that I would always suggest to people to do is never underestimate how important it is to gather employee data across all of the different characteristics. Because what we will see and what we do see is that people ultimately capture, let's say, gender only, but forget about the rest. Then you have in a situation later on, and certainly right now, where we see the mobilization of the Black Lives Matter movement and the collection of people from all different backgrounds finally listening and coming together. Organizations are now scrambling to actually find out what is our black representation in the organization. And they can't tell their they can't tell their people they don't know. And there's a great example where you have your own diversity and inclusion dashboard in your own yeah. words through Monzo. The government have been forcing organizations, compelling organizations to reveal their gender pay gap data. What are your thoughts on them going further around ethnicity? Yeah, I, I would hope, I, and I do think had COVID-19 not happened, that the pressure, et cetera, on ethnicity pay gaps becoming compulsory would have been in a much shorter time frame. I think, I'm, I'm hoping certainly that likely in the next few years that that comes into effect. Certainly wherever I go and wherever I do this, and you'll see in the Monzo 2020 report as well, I had intended in doing a, an ethnicity pay gap report early next year anyway. And I think it's important that organizations get ahead of the curve. You shouldn't need to be told to do this to know that it's the right thing to do. It will be a, like it will be a bad pay gap for most places because there is not enough people of color, for example, in senior leadership roles and they're the best paying jobs. But you have to be very honest about that and say, what are you going to do to fix it? So on this, and I'm keen to bring Mairead back mm. in momentarily, um, I'm sharing your own numbers with you because you've been so candid. You've seen, again, commendably, a rise in neurodiverse individuals within the team. So perhaps if we go to the flip side of 
something you're proudest of on that journey so far, perhaps because it was very hard fought? Um, on the neurodiversity space or? Well, perhaps or, or, or much more broadly. It's, it's, it's too easy for me to beat you up around the slips <laughs> on these things. So it's uh, but, yeah. but, but it's better to be a bit more reflective. Yeah, I think overall the, the thing certainly from my Monzo work that I'm most proud of is the, and it sounds quite boring, but the, the implementation of a standard understanding of what privilege means across all of our senior leaders. Now, there's a reason why that's important, because what privilege means to me will mean something different to you unless we have a common educational space to learn about that. Now, to do that in Monzo, I rolled out a learning path that is mandatory now for all senior leaders, talking about how data and the, the bias-shaped society affects both internally and externally, how that affects your workforce and your processes, but also doing things that help open up the conversation on privilege, because these are the kinds of things that, those are the people that make the decisions, okay? And if they have a greater awareness of this, that bleeds down in through the organization, and that's ultimately what we want. And that's something, you know, regardless of who's there, that has a huge impact because that will always be there. And and for somebody listening who's um, just been hearing about that for the first time, this is mandatory privilege awareness training. Give us a couple more lines on what that means and what someone could expect going into that. Yeah, so... Mandatory privilege awareness training. So it's not opt-in. That's the main part because then the people you need to go don't go. Um, and, then, and then that's no use. The point of it is to really help people understand how the world treats people differently based on X, Y or Z. And taking it outside of just a gendered lens, but covering things like gender, ethnicity, um, English as first language, um, disabilities, neurodiversity, age, financial income, all of these different things that create a different layer on how the world either treats you or you respond to society. And again, creating a more level understanding, excuse me, from people that are in majority demographics, understanding what it's like for those that aren't, that are, you know, in the anomaly many on many, many occasions. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Mairead, as you hear Cherie reflect on the most recent chapter. What bells is it ringing for you within the organisation? Each organisation has its own diversity challenges. What are you making of it? I have to say I 100% agree with everything that Cherie has just said, and I'm taking some notes as well in terms of things that I want to go away and think about for, for my own team and my own organisation. In terms of looking at our Open Reach Northern Ireland team, we're a very heavily engineering organisation. We've been trying to focus quite heavily on the gender diversity over the last couple of years and very much trying to look at STEM subjects the whole way through from primary school, secondary school and encourage people as much as possible into an engineering, I suppose, career. And very much for me, what I've been encouraging across our team is people to role model this. There's nothing that sort of jars with me more than people talking about it but not actually doing it um, so I've been saying to people I don't want to hear a presentation or a speech or anything from you I want to actually see that in action across your teams and the profile of your teams and it's actually something that I'm very proud of within my own team is having that and I think to do that you have to put in the work and the effort to know the people within your organization and also to understand and get to know the talent outside your organization that you want to encourage into it as well I think it's easy for people to say oh, well, I didn't get applicants, I didn't get a diverse pool of applicants, so that's it. I think we need to look much wider than that and take responsibility for that as part of how do we encourage a diversity in, the, in applicants into roles within our organisations. Mairead, have you got a question for Cherie? It was just something I was thinking about as you are talking there. We have um, fair employment legislation in Northern Ireland where actually we have to track a lot of the data in terms of 
people's backgrounds and um, I suppose religious being a key element of that in Northern Ireland. But do you think something like that could have benefited if rolled out wider, say, across the UK in terms of encouraging or making companies be more aware of, I suppose, the, the statistics of their organisation? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Um, and the, the point is, it's very difficult for an organisation to know where it's trying to go or what it's trying to fix without knowing where it's at right now. And that's why data is such a, a big, big part of this, because otherwise DNI strategies are ultimately making assumptions. And that means the person doing it should be someone with expertise like myself or someone else is putting their own bias straight into the process. But when you have data, you're analyzing it, you're determining who's dropping out of the process and where, who's faring better in progressions versus X versus Y, and really rooting every change, every piece that you do around the data and what it's telling you, both employee data, society-based census data, and perception data, which is like your employee engagement surveys and things like that to capture the feeling data, I guess is what you could describe that as. But it's super important. And yes, I, I do think that that would be a significant step change as well. On a, on, on a, on a serious note as well, um, Shuri, what question would you ask Mairead? Mairead, because I, 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 I think about broadband and you know the connectivity issue back home a lot, because I have a lot of colleagues and stuff and I guess people that live in rural Ireland where the lack of connectivity is ultimately an element of exclusion for them. There, there are young children that I know. Um, there's a young woman called Avine Mangan that you might have actually heard of, um, but she does a lot of work to get broadband into rural Ireland. And what she has to do, she has to go to Tesco Car Park to use her Wi-Fi to be able to do her homework because she doesn't have connectivity where she lives. And I would just love to hear your perspective on that. I guess the the importance of you know connectivity in terms of wider inclusion because I think it's a it's a really big piece personally. I totally agree with you. I think it is massive for the wider social inclusion piece. So we would get, um, we would have quite a few conversations in terms of connectivity, trying to address that regional imbalance, particularly in Northern Ireland, where we have a, a very large rural community. Um, and that is one of the things we're focusing on very heavily at the minute is trying to get that fibre network out as much as we can. And there's certain things within that, so community fibre partnerships where we work with communities to ensure that we have fibre broadband to those homes, to those schools. And to be fair, um, Northern Ireland government have a big procurement ongoing at the minute that's still to be awarded, but that's to address the 80, 90,000 homes that have very slow speeds in Northern Ireland. So that should see in the next three to four years that they will be given the same level, same speed of broadband that everybody else has. So be you in a city, town, village or on a single dwelling in a very rural community, that you have exactly the same access that everybody else does. And I think the last couple of months have just demonstrated exactly how important that is. It's not just about having that connectivity to a school or a community group anymore. People need it to their homes. It's the only way that we can school from home and, and be properly connected with each other. So absolutely, there's a, a massive growth plan there over the next few years, massive investment in infrastructure. Why don't I ask a slightly different question? What's the price of not being inclusive as an organisation? What are you lining yourself up for? I suppose for me, it would very much lead to a stifled organisation where people aren't bringing the best of themselves to work. And I don't think that's healthy either for the individual or the wider team or the business organisation in itself. I think we recruit people to bring the best of themselves to work. And if we don't encourage them and give them the confidence to be able to do that, we're losing out. 
We are not getting the best of them. And I think often in corporate organizations, particularly we recruit people because there's a spark there. There's something we think that they will bring to our team, but then we put them in the box that they need to have in the corporate world. And we actually end up breaking that spirit that they were recruited for. So I think that's something we need to be very cognizant of within our organizations. Interesting. Shuri, please, let's build on that. Yeah, and I think I think for me, the, the big thing here is very regularly, all of these organizations, our own included, um, are working to create a solution that works for a whole breadth of people. Now, if we don't prioritize having a representation in your organization that is at least close to matching or at least pulling in those different experiences, it is almost impossible to create a solution that really will work for many. Um, considering even, you know, how do you test a solution works um, if you're thinking about, let's say, um, facial recognition, what type of data sets are you using, who is developing the edge cases, and what are the requirements based on, let's say, lending for those with vulnerable backgrounds or different financial incomes and stuff. I think the point here is you can't do those things if you don't bring people in and have people in from different backgrounds, but actually allow them to be listened to. Everybody can speak, but not everybody is listened to. And that's the big point here is inclusion for me is ultimately people have the opportunity to speak, um, but they also are actively listened to as opposed to just, you know, what goes in one ear goes straight out the other. We don't want that. And, and you've already raised there, Sharia, a slightly subtly different interpretation of your role, which is not just diversity and inclusion within the organisation, but also within the customer base, right? Yeah, and certainly in in Monzo as well around the product that we develop, but also where I'm going, a big part of my work will be um, actually helping a lot of the organizations that use the product on their inclusion journeys, providing them with sort of an industry standard baseline of this is what you need to do, this is how you need to do it, and this is why, almost like, I guess, a toolkit or a a module you could describe it as, um, and that's exciting. So so I'm going to now go on thin ice with what I think are going to get called stupid questions. Let's go for it. I understand a benefit or many benefits of driving for a more diverse workforce. And these have been incredibly well covered and well explained. Are there any benefits for pushing towards a more diverse customer base? Marie, do you want to answer that one first? Or? Yes, I think there is benefits in having a, a diverse customer base because I think that diverse customer base it's like what Cherie was saying earlier, it's about listening and really hearing what people are saying. So if you have that diverse customer base, you learn from your customers, your customers also become people that work within your organization as well. Um, and it's a, a very holistic, I suppose, wider team environment that you're part of. But I think a diverse customer base very much adds value to your organization and your team as well. Fascinating. Uh, Cherie, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think the Realistically, the more broad their audience is that you can reach, likely the more successful that your product can be. Think about it even just in terms of money sense and financial sense. But um, the the purpose of if you're trying to create something that does actually work for a lot of different kinds of people, they will be drawn to it. And that will give you um, certainly a foothold in the market if you're able to do that. Then that's not easy to do. Um, but you, if you can do it, um, that's incredibly beneficial for many different senses. Um, and I know a lot of organizations are working on, you know, how do we diversify our customer base? What does that mean from a marketing perspective, yeah. from, you know, communications and all of those things? Because they all they all link in. I've got some questions I ask every guest on the lens. Um, I have given you a heads up on these, as I tend to do. Um, the first one is who you'd like to have coffee with. I'm going to ask you, Cherie, then Mairead. You know what? I'm going to say The Rock again. <laughs> Just because I've, like, felt like, and this is very silly, but I think 
the man has accomplished some ridiculous things. I remember being younger and reading his biography. It was one of the first books I read when I was really young <laughs> um, and hearing all about him. And I just think it would be like a nice piece of closure considering I followed him so much when I was younger. Let's say yeah, that. Also, top tip, if you haven't seen The Rock singing Happy Birthday to Grandma Grover on Twitter, then that is essential viewing. Uh, is. Great choice, Dwayne Johnson for the win. Uh, <laughs> Mairead, who are you going to sit down with for coffee? Someone, they have to be alive, but they interest you in some way. My first very honest response will have to be, I would love to have a quiet coffee with my husband with no kids, no spilt juices, no anything. That would just be like a real treat with like no no stress about um, two toddlers. In the, in the, um, probably... I have to say I love Michelle Obama. I just find her such a charismatic character. I would love to sit down and chat with her about the whole journey she went through while they were doing the whole um, presidential campaign and everything else and all the learning she took out of that. Um, Or Roger Federer actually is the other one in terms of managing a long-term brand. And really capitalising well on it. (laughs) No, well, 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 Roger... Roger has not come up before in this question. Uh, Michelle, in fact, uh, probably our top choice on the lens, I must say. Steve Morales, chief executive of the co-op, is off to see her in his own mind. Uh, but that's a, it's, it's, it's a great answer. Thank you. Um, what about a book? What's on your bookshelf? Something you think is worthy of a wider audience? Doesn't have to be a business book. Mairead, then Cherie. I'm not into business books at all. I, I can't stand that. <laughs> um, anything that sort of war, post-war type stuff, I love. Um, but probably my most recent favourite actually is Trevor Noah, Born a Crime. So oh. just after my time in South Africa, and we loved his show when we were living in Cape Town, absolutely loved it. So it was just one for me. I could relate to a lot of the, the stuff he called out about the country and everything else, but just that witty, quick-witted intelligence. I loved it. Cherie, um, what is on your bookshelf? Like Maureen, I'm not a big fan of really, really business-focused books, but one of the books that I do really like is called Better Allies by Karen Kitlin, which is like an action-focused book for people to take away on how to, you know, be more inclusive, not just in work, but in your day-to-day. Like I have it in my bookshelf um, and I've also, like in Monzo, I bought copies for all of our offices and everything like that. But I'll also say, you know, hopefully my own book will be on my bookshelf too. At least yes, I'll, I'll at least sell one <laughs> copy to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Has it got a title yet? No, I give the brief and stuff for my the cover, etc. So they're working on the design of that at the minute. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then they'll confirm the title end of this month, I think, which is really yes, exciting. Really. We will watch this space. Now, yes. a final question uh, to you both. Um, I'd like you to go back in time and give your former self piece of advice. Uh, Cherie, what would you say? Where are we going back to and what do you say? I would go back to when I was sort of 16 to 19, that kind of age. And I would say always be your own biggest fan. Women of colour especially are almost always told to be you know, not dominant, very underconfident and be quiet. I'm entirely the opposite of all of those things now. <laughs> but it's taken a lot of years for me to break down constantly having to you know talk about we instead of I talking about my accomplishments with confidence. And because I'm able to do that now, I know my self-worth which means it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because I know I'm good at this and I also know I need to grow in these areas. And I would love to have learned that earlier, to be honest. Oh, that's amazing advice. I, I secretly <laughs> want to take that piece of advice to every school child in the world. Um, there we go. Perfect. That's very powerful. Thank you. Uh, Mairead, where are we going back to and what do you say to your younger self? Probably quite similar to Sheree. I would probably put it in the, the first real job. So take it to that early 20s sort of age. Have confidence in yourself. 
ask the questions. Don't be worried about looking silly in an environment. Don't over question, overthink, just go with it. I think I spent the first two or three years as quiet as a mouse thinking, oh, I don't want to say that or I don't want to say it in that meeting or I don't want to be viewed in that way. And I would just love to go back and have that opportunity again to go in and just be myself. Amazing reflections and uh, hugely looking forward to following your next steps on your extraordinary adventures. Uh, Mairead Mayer, Shuri Acheson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.